Well, where does that sort of stiffened neck inevitably lead? That's what, this, that's what the narrator here is warning us about. That's why he spends 15 verses laying this out. Is he is saying to us, if you and I allow this sort of stiff-necked, hard-heartedness into our lives, the results of it will be catastrophic. Okay, this sort of behavior will eventually lead to disaster. And, and this is the end result of that sort of disaster. Now let's keep reading. I want you to notice, here's the ands I was talking about, picking up in verse 15. And they rejected his statutes and his covenants that he had made with their fathers, and his testimonies which he had testified against them. They followed idols, became idolaters, and went after the nations who were all around them, concerning whom the Lord had charged them that they should not do like them. So they left all the commandments of the Lord their God, made for themselves a molded image and two calves, made a wooden image and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served Baal, and they caused their sons and daughters to pass through the fire, practiced witchcraft and soothsaying, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, to provoke him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah alone. Also, Judah did not keep the commandments. That's the southern kingdom. Did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the statutes of Israel which they made. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel, afflicted them, and delivered them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them from his sight. For he tore Israel from the house of David. This is the divided kingdom. And they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. Then Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit a great sin. For the children of Israel walked in all the sins of Jeroboam which he did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight. As he had said by all his servants the prophets. So Israel was carried away from their own land to Assyria as it is to this day. Do you get this catalog of sins that's being laid out here? They did this, and they did this, and they did this, and they did this, and the list goes on. And, and I should just, I should stop and say, um, we can look at this long catalog of sins, but imagine, imagine if the Lord put together a catalog of the list of your sins, or of my sins. I guarantee you my catalog would be a lot longer than this catalog is. In fact, listen to the way David says it. Psalm 130, if you, Lord, should mark iniquities, oh, Lord, who could stand? Isn't that true? Man, if God kept a record of our sins to hold it against us in order to condemn, David is saying, who could possibly stand in the light of that? That's this catalog that he's giving here in, in 2 Kings. If God did that for us, we'd all be crushed underneath the weight of it. But thankfully, there's verse 4. But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Make sure you get that. My hope is not that my list of sins is shorter than your list of sins. It's probably not. My hope is not that I'm not that bad. I am that bad. My hope is that there is a God who forgives. That we have a God who will forgive us this long catalog of sins. And he provided that forgiveness for us in his son. It's in Christ that we don't have to stand condemned because of this. But Israel hardens their heart and they are condemned. 
And so what's the end result? The end result is God cast them out. Now, of course, that's talking about the land. They get booted out of the promised land. But that's not just talking about geography. That's talking about fellowship. These people are evicted from God's presence. And did you notice how in the middle of that we got that little parenthetical statement about Judah? That it's saying they did all these sins and God cast them out because of their sins. And then it says, and Judah was doing the same sins. Well, why does it give us that little addendum about Judah? Well, if Judah is doing the same sins, what's going to happen to Judah if they don't change? They're headed in the same direction. So in a lot of ways, it's saying that what's happening here in the northern kingdom is meant to be a warning to Judah. It's like God is saying, hey, look, they're turning away from me, and look what's happening. So if you don't turn away, this is, this is the New Testament saying, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. And, and the, the, the New Testament's going to tell us, not only is this story a warning to Judah, these stories are also a warning to us. Right? You get that regularly in the New Testament, that we're to look at these stories where these Old Testament folks harden their heart, and as a result of hardening their heart, they're judged by God, they're condemned by God, and we now have an even more clear word from God than they did. We have Christ, Jesus, God in the flesh. God's revealed himself the clearest way he could ever deliver, uh, reveal himself. So if God hold, held them accountable... Do we think we'll escape the words of Hebrews? Do we think we'll escape if we neglect so great a salvation? No, so this whole story is this warning about where all of this is headed. Okay, so that's the fall. But there's a, a second little section to it that I want to read with you. 2 Kings 17. Let me figure out where I am here. Here we go. Verse 24. That's where we are. Didn't we read through verse 23 a second ago? All right, verse 24. Then the king of Assyria brought people from Babylon, Kutha, Ava, Hamath, and from Sepharvaim, and placed them in the cities of Samaria instead of the children of Israel. And they took possession of Samaria and dwelt in its cities. And it was so at the beginning of their dwelling there that they did not fear the Lord. Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. So they spoke to the king of Assyria, saying, The nations whom you have removed and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the rituals of the God of the land. Therefore he has sent lions among them, and indeed they're killing them because they do not know the rituals of the God of the land. And then the king of Assyria commanded, saying, Send there one of the priests whom you brought from there. Let him go and dwell there, and let him teach them the rituals of the God of the land. And then one of the priests they'd carried away from Samaria came and dwelt in Bethel and taught them how they should fear the Lord. So this is sort of phase two of Assyria's conquest plan. So when they conquered an area, they didn't just, let me back up. So what you're going to find out is when they conquered the northern kingdom of Israel, three things happened to the people. The majority of the people were, were hauled off and relocated. We're going to find out later in 2 Kings that there's, there's a remnant of faithful Israelites who moved down to the southern kingdom. Okay, then you have 
a sparse number, usually of very poor, low-class Israelites who were left in the land, but not very many of them. And so what the Assyrians would do is they would then get these people from all of these other regions and resettle them in the land with these Jews who had been left there. Okay, so all of these people are moving in. They're, they're all bringing their cultures with them. And again, the idea is that by doing all this and blending all these people together, they'll lose any sense of cultural national identity. Because people who don't, who don't have solidarity, people who don't have shared values and shared culture are much less likely to unite and fight when something like this, by the way, you should file that away somewhere, right? When there's no shared values, no shared culture, no shared identity, those sorts of people rarely unite to fight when something like this is going on. So that, that's how Assyria tried to prevent there from being any sort of rebellion in these people that they've conquered. So they move all of these people in who come with their cultures and their own gods. And so now every god under the sun is being worshipped in this land that God had originally given to his people. And God is not pleased by that. And so God begins sending judgment now in, into this land in the form of lions. Now, there, there used to be, there's a, a breed of lions. They're called Asiatic lions that used to be all over the Middle East. They were, they were pretty much wiped out of the Middle East a couple hundred years ago. There's still some in, in India. But lions start wreaking havoc on these people. Well, these people are idolaters but they are religiously minded. And so their, their assumption is all of this is happening because we've offended the God of the land. Now remember, how did these pagan peoples think of gods? Well, they thought that each territory had a god, right? That there's lots of different gods and each god has its territory. So they've moved into a new territory and they think, well, we don't know the, who this god is of this region and we're not worshiping him, right? So he's mad at us. So we need to, to figure out how to appease the God of this territory. Okay, that's how pagan religion, pagan religion always thinks of religion in these terms. It's about appeasement. It's about what do we need to do? What incense do we need to burn? What sacrifices do we need to make to keep the gods from getting mad at us? Okay, so you should back up on that because this is still the way a lot of people think of Christianity, right? That I need to go to church on Sunday so God's not mad at me. And I need to make sure that I give my tithes so that I'll stay on God's good side. That's not true religion, but that's how these pagans think of God. So they get the message to the king of Assyria. Hey, we got their God mad at us. We got to figure out how to turn this off. And the king of Assyria says, well, why don't we get one of the former priests from that land who's been relocated? We'll find him and we'll send him back to teach all of you who the God of that area is. So they get one of the former priests from Samaria and send him back. Now, that should send some alarm bells going off. Because if they're getting a priest from the northern kingdom to go back, what were all the priests from the northern kingdom like? Corrupt. They had formed their own priesthood, and they had developed their own corrupted religion. So they're sending back a priest who certainly knows the name Yahweh, and he knows some basics about who the God of Israel is, but anything he's going to teach them is going to be terribly corrupted. Okay, but he goes back and he teaches them at least the name of the God of that area. So, here's what happens next. Let's keep reading. Picking up in verse 29. However, 
Every nation continued to make gods of its own and put them in the shrines on the high places which the Samaritans had made, every nation in the cities where they dwelt. The men of Babylon made Succoth Benoth, the men of Cuth made Nergal, the men of Hamath made Ashima, and the Avites made Nibhaz and Tartak, and the Sepharvites burned their children in fire to Adrimelech and Anamelech, the gods of Sepharvaim. So they feared the Lord. And from every class, they appointed for themselves priests of the high places who sacrificed for them in the shrines of the high places. They feared the Lord, yet served their own gods according to the rituals of the nations from among whom they were carried away. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandments which the Lord had commanded the children of Israel, excuse me, the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel. Now, Paul, make sure you get what's happening. So they send a priest there who teaches them, hey, they do have a God. His name's Yahweh. So they know the name of Israel's God now. And it says they feared the Lord. Again, I mentioned earlier, that can mean they worship the Lord, but are they really worshiping the Lord? Because what are they doing? All they've done is they've added Yahweh to their pantheon of gods. So now they're going to worship Yahweh along with their 30 other gods. In fact, when you read this phrase, that gets repeated several times, they feared the Lord, yet served their own gods. I think that's meant to be read uh, tongue-in-cheek, ironic. It's saying... They, scare quotes, they feared the Lord as they worshiped these other gods. Yeah, they feared the Lord as they broke the most central commandment that God gave. That you're not allowed to worship any other gods besides him. And then you finally come to verse 34 and he gets down to the root of it. Verse 34 says, To this day they continue practicing former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, right? It's saying, yeah, they feared the Lord and worshiped other gods. Yeah, they feared the Lord as they bowed before idols. They did not really fear the Lord. Now, how do we know they're not really worshiping God? Because one of the fundamentals of worshiping God is exclusivity. God will not allow himself to be worshiped alongside anyone or anything else. So, so if you worship God with something else, you're not worshiping God. Okay, so, so true faith demands exclusivity. It is definitionally intolerant. God tolerates no rivals. God tolerates no idols. So these people are not really worshiping God. Okay, keep reading. We'll get to the end of the chapter. To this day, they continue practicing the former rituals. They do not fear the Lord, nor do they follow their their statutes or their ordinances or the law and commandments which the Lord had commanded the children of Jacob, whom he named Israel, with whom the Lord had made a covenant. Here comes the covenant. And charged them, saying, You shall not fear other gods, nor bow down to them, nor serve them, nor sacrifice to them. But the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt with great power and an outstretched arm, him you shall fear, him you shall worship, and to him you shall offer sacrifice. And the statutes, the ordinances, the law, and the commandment which he wrote for you, you shall be careful to observe forever. You shall not fear other gods. And the covenant that I've made with you, you shall not forget, nor shall you fear other gods. But the Lord your God you shall fear, and he will deliver you from the hand of all your enemies. 
However, they did not obey, but they followed their former rituals. So these nations feared the Lord, yet served their carved images. Also, their children and their children's children have continued doing as their fathers did, even to this day. Do you see what, do you see what this area, this is so helpful in when you come to the New Testament in making sense of who the Samaritans are. Do you see what this area became known for? This area became known as a region that blended together the worship of God with all sorts of pagan practices. So, so they sort of had a cut and paste God. We'll have this part of the God of Israel and we'll grab these elements and they, they, had, they had their own unique self-made religion. And there's something in us that likes that. There is something in us that likes a, a kind of cut and paste God where I can take the parts that I like and add a little bit of this and cut out the parts that I don't like and I'll have a God that suits me. There's a, John MacArthur tells a great story that this is years ago, he was driving to visit one of his sons going through, um, I think it was rural Arkansas. And he was seeing these signs along the side of the road that, that up ahead there was a place that had homemade quilts for sale. Well, his wife uh, liked homemade quilts, so he decided while he was gone, he'd stop by and he would buy a quilt to bring home as a gift to his wife. So he said he pulled off where the store was, and it was actually, the store was actually the lady's house who made the quilts. And so he said he knocked on the front door, the lady came, welcomed him inside, brought him into the den, as she went to get the quilts. And he said she brought him into the den, and in the den sat this lady's husband. And on the TV, he was watching some religious program. This televangelist was preaching. And he said on the, the coffee tables around this guy were stacks of books, some Christian books and every religion you can imagine and some cult books. And he, he wasn't sure what to make of it. He thought, well, maybe he's a Christian who's studying other religions. And John MacArthur said, he said to the guy, hey, are you a believer? And the guy said, a believer in what? And MacArthur said, well, I saw... He pointed to a Christian book. I saw that book and thought maybe you were a believer in Christ. And the guy said, I just read all of it and take the good from it all. And he said, about that time, the lady who, who had the quilts came in, and she said she laid out a quilt for him to buy, and he said it was the ugliest thing he had ever seen, that it was just a hodgepodge of different fabrics and different shapes and different colors, and he had to respectfully decline buying it. But he said it dawned on him that that quilt was the perfect picture of her husband's faith. That he was taking all of these different little snippets and thinking he could sew it all together to come up with a view of God that would fit his needs. And, and it's tempting to do that. Listen, you still hear people talk in this language. You'll hear, you'll hear people say things like, well, I like to think of God as dot, dot, dot. And you should think when you hear that, who cares how you like to think of God? It does not matter how I like to think of God or how you like to think of God. All that matters is how God's revealed himself. All that matters is who he is as he's revealed himself in the Bible. If that's not the God you worship, you're not worshiping God. You're, you're worshiping your own make-believe, self-made idol. And that's what the area of Samaria would be known for all the way until you come to the days of Jesus, right? Because when Jesus comes on the scene, what's going on with the Samaritans? 
In fact, what's the attitude between the Jews and the Samaritans in Jesus' day? Horrible. They hated each other. Why did they hate each other? Well, it goes back to this. When the Assyrians had repopulated this area with all of these foreigners, what had the Jews who had been left there done? They had intermarried with all of these pagan foreigners. And so the Jews, the, the true Jews, viewed the Samaritans as compromisers, as half-breeds. And then what else had the Samaritans done? Well, what this area was known for. They had taken parts of Judaism and had blended it together to make their own religion. So, so the Samaritan religion was they accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, but only the first five books of the Old Testament. So they, they almost deified Moses. They rejected Jerusalem as the place of worship. They thought Mount Gerizim was the place of worship. They had built their own sanctuary at Mount Gerizim. So they had done the same thing that Samaria had been known for for eons. They had combined Judaism with other things and had come up with their own religion. It was a place of deep, deep spiritual darkness. Okay, that's the Samaritans in Jesus' day, which makes what Jesus did there stand out so much, right? Because you'll remember normally, even the Jews' hatred of that area was so much that if you were traveling from northern Israel to southern Israel, what would you do? Samaria was right in the middle. You had Galilee and then where Jerusalem was, and here's Samaria. And normally, the Jews hated the Samaritans so much, if you were traveling to Jerusalem for a feast, rather than going through Samaria, you would cross the Jordan River, travel south, cross back over the Jordan River to get to Jerusalem, just so you didn't have to pass through Samaritan territory. But what does Jesus do? This would be a good point to spend some time on John 4, wouldn't it? Jesus intentionally, purposefully, goes to Samaria. And who does he encounter in Samaria? He encounters this woman at the well who he has this conversation with. And by the way, in that conversation, he confronts her about their wrong, self-made religion. And confronts, confronts her about a lot of other things, too. But what does Jesus end up doing with that lady? He, he tells her what the solution to their problems are, her problems are. What's the solution? himself. See, one of the things, the Samaritans accepted the first five books, which meant that in that, they also believed a Messiah was coming. And so where does Jesus end up taking her to? He ends up telling her he's the Messiah they had been waiting for. And she goes and gets all the people in her village and brings them out to meet Jesus. And it doesn't even stop there, does it? When, when Jesus is sending his followers out with the gospel, where does he tell them to go? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. Does that end up happening? You remember who's the first person recorded in Acts who goes to Samaria? One of the first deacons, a man named Philip. It's Acts, uh, Acts chapter 8. Philip goes to Samaria. And there's tremendous fruit in Samaria. See, it's, there's so much fruit, in fact, when the apostles in Jerusalem hear what's happening, they send up, uh, I think it's Peter and John, they send two of the apostles up to check it out, to verify what's happening. Really, the Samaritans are coming to, to trust in Christ? But there's, there's this tremendous fruit in there. So I'm just making the point. This is an area that fell hard, rightfully, under the judgment of God. I mean, the spiritual lights went out, and the spiritual lights were out there for generations. But the lights didn't stay out. Jesus got the gospel to this area. People believed. So that's, all of this helps connect dots in the New Testament when we come across the Samaritans in this region. This is the root of a lot of the problems that you end up seeing. Okay, so we're... We'll stop there. That's Second Kings. Any questions? All right, well, let's pray. We'll dismiss.